The following Dharma talk was given by monastic Shoan Ankele at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a Dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is given free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. Confusion and recognition. So according to the Dharma, the basic problem, if you will, the cause of our suffering stems from confusion. Nothing is actually inherently wrong with us or with reality. It's just that we don't see clearly. We don't understand clearly who we are. And if you think about an experience of confusion that you've had, maybe bring a recent example to mind, you know when you're confused, it's basically impossible to respond well or like take proper care of a situation or, or, or feel very good about what's going on. In order to like live well and thrive, we need a basic sense, a basic correct understanding of what's going on, of, of the situation. And perhaps it could be said that the more clearly we understand, the more deeply and truly we understand what's happening, the better we can take care of it. And so this is kind of the point of practice to clarify this situation, to understand this one, who we are, and what is going on. So interesting to note that although we speak about transformation a lot, in one sense, it's really not about transformation. It's really more about recognition. And if you think of that experience of confusion or one, if that one didn't resolve for you, then one where it did, even a really simple example, you know, of like, being on dish crew and like, where does this go? And then, oh, right? That moment of, oh, when things fall into place. Now we see, now we understand. And so one might imagine like what the reverberations, (laughs) the echoes of the big O of like understanding more completely and more clearly who we are might be. And so the point of zazen, if I can be so bold as to say there's a point, which probably... (laughs) 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 Perhaps a controversial statement, 
But the point is to create a conducive container for this recognition to occur. And, um, you know, we talk about this kind of recognition happening, happening suddenly. We talk about it happening gradually, over time, unfolding little by little. And first, perhaps, as just glimmers, flickers, shadows, then perhaps more sustained. And finally, what we hope is that we can actually stabilize our recognition, thoroughly illuminate the situation. We say enlightenment. And to live from this, to live from this so it's not philosophical, it's not conceptual, it's not an idea, it's a felt, embodied experience. So when we're sitting in zazen, we are not actually trying to create a state of mind, which continues to shock and surprise me even now. I feel like I benefit greatly from explicit reminders to myself along those lines with frequency. We're recognizing what is already present, existing right here, now. It's just obscured, obscured by our obsessive thinking, our different emotional highs and lows, our own reactivity, the churning of our mind. All of that is like a smokescreen, obscuring the view. But fundamentally, if we look closely, we see like, oh, there's nothing substantial there. There is a condensed teaching, sometimes referred to as a pith teaching, from the 11th century meditation master, Tilopa, who was from northwest India, where Bangladesh, Bengal, that region is. And um, it's just six words, six words of advice, sometimes called Tilopa's six nails. And um, I guess in the original Tibetan, it's literally just six words. And when it's translated into English, this is quite a, a pithy translation, but it's a little bit more than, than just six words. Okay, so here we go. Meditation instruction. Don't recall. Don't imagine. Don't think. Don't examine. Don't control. Rest. Rest. Rest in what? When the mind rests, what? What then? And this is where no one can really say what then. In the teachings, we sort of read around it. It's talked about as the ineffable, as Buddha mind, as freedom, as natural ease, as luminosity, as emptiness. 
as no self, impermanence. These are just words, but they help sometimes. They can also just add to the confusion. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, the teachings of impermanence and no self were offered by the Buddha as keys to unlock the door of reality. From the point of view of time, we say impermanence. From the point of view of space, we say non-self. Keys to unlock the door of reality. Hints. I was speaking with a friend the other day who is um, making a study and practice of tarot. And she was talking about tarot as giving hints. And it came up in our conversation because she asked me a question about myself and my life. And I was not sure. I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. And she said, you need a hint. And, you know, in the world of tarot, we're using images and symbols outside of ourselves, but we're the ones interpreting them. And so, in a sense, we're gaining access to something that we already know through another channel because our conscious mind isn't um, in touch with that. And I really loved that, hints. And I was thinking about that in terms of this idea of recognition. Like, could there be hints given? (laughs) Of course there are, all the time. And if we think about the universe as being filled with hints, going about our day and trying to like take them in, how might that shift things for us? I have um, on my personal altar in my cabin this incredible skeleton of a flying squirrel that um, uh, Gokhan and I came across on a springtime walk, and it's perfectly preserved, and I have it on my altar as a hint to myself. So, there's another teaching metaphor that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. It's, it's the one where the mind is compared to the sky and thoughts are compared to clouds. And just as clouds are so insubstantial, there's nothing there, and they just pass through the sky, so too, if we're resting in our zazen, we can begin to experience our thoughts just like clouds, insubstantial, passing through. We don't need to freak out about them. Um, We can just notice them. And so I was thinking, like, wow, like, are clouds hints? 
Like, what if you looked up at the sky and has anyone ever sort of just like in seeing a cloud kind of gotten the complete teaching? And this made my mind turn a little bit more. And I created a story. So I want you to pull out your imaginary mat. (laughs) That's what we had in my first grade class for story time. I had a yellow bath mat that I bought at Woolworths with my dad. And it had a bear, a yellow bear, a different shade of yellow bear on the yellow background, and a rubber bath mat backing. That was my mat. So pull out your proverbial mat And if only we had some graham crackers and apple juice. Ready? Okay. (laughs) Thanks for the enthusiastic nod, Tom. (laughs) Okay, so I don't know of any um, Buddhist creation myth that's like, you know, in the beginning. Um, So uh, this is one. It's totally invented. It's outside the tradition. Forgive me for any, I don't know, irreverence that that may bring up for people. Um, And, you know, Buddhism is is not theistic, so we don't have deities. We're not um, uh, telling stories about how the universe was created by a a god in that way. Um, So for this, I'm going outside of tradition also and borrowing from creation myths for my own purpose and delight. (laughs) In the beginning were Lu and Zo. They weren't beings exactly. They were and are original presence. They have always existed. They are beyond gender, beyond age, beyond race. But for the purposes of this story, so that you can hold them as beings in your mind, you might wish to picture them as people, maybe people like you. So in the beginning, Lou and Zoe just hung out for a long, long, long time. They didn't do anything. They didn't even talk. They just were. And then one day they decided to take their original presence and make the world out of it. Zoe loved the vast expanse of space. And so Zoe made the oceans, the continents, the deserts, the mountains, the big rivers wending across the planet and also the vast forests, glaciers, and tundra. Lou liked the detail work. Lou created spiders and pine cones, black bears and dandelions, bison and hermit crabs. Zoe made the seasons, the night and day, the moon, the sun, rain and snow, wind and fog. Lou made mushrooms and fireflies and apple trees. They created like this for a very long, long, long time. The world grew more and more complex. 
more and more subtle and more and more beautiful. It was all one thing, original presence, but with so many forms and appearances. Then, in a moment when the summer breeze was rustling the peonies, carrying their fragrance across the meadow, Lou said, the world is so beautiful, isn't it, Zoe? Yes, said Zoe, it is. I want to create another being who will recognize and appreciate how beautiful it is. A creature that can marvel at the sunset and be awed by the night sky, ponder meaning and experience rapture. I want to create a creature with that kind of awareness. Zoe, ever cautious, raised an eyebrow. Hmm. I don't know if that's such a good idea. Lou took this in, but the promise and potential was too much to let go of. So Lou got to work. It took a long, long, long time, but Lou wasn't in any rush. Then, in a moment, Lou was done. They made a being who could think and reflect and marvel at the beauty of the world. This being was awake. I'm calling this a Buddha, announced Lou, beaming. Zoe admired the Buddha. Lou made some more Buddhas. Zoe decided to help. Soon, the world had quite a few Buddhas and the world's beauty seemed magnified because of these Buddhas. There was music, art, dance, poetry, ritual, philosophy, and love. And then the problems began. The Buddhas started fighting. Then they started ruining things, hurting each other, and trashing the very things that they were made to love. Lou was heartbroken. Why are they acting this way? Zoe studied the situation closely. Whoa, check it out. They think they're separate. They think they're solid individual beings. They think the world is about them. Lou said, what? Oh, no! How could this have gone so wrong? They've forgotten who they are. They, they have to remember. Zoe said, well, it looks like they could use some help. How about a hint? So Lou made clouds. Look, Zoe. When they see these clouds, how insubstantial they are, how they come together and break apart, just arising from atmospheric conditions, just part of the flow, they'll recognize that they're like that too. All those beliefs and opinions and all that that they're fighting about, they don't have any self-existence either. They'll see. Zoe looked skeptical. I don't know, that seems awfully subtle. Well, I'm gonna make it obvious. 
I'm going to put them right there where everyone can see them, no matter where they are. I'm going to put them in the sky. Then they'll be everywhere. Whenever they look up, they'll see this, this, this reminder. So Lou did. But it didn't work. Definitely too subtle, said Zoe. So then Lou made food for the Buddhas. Look, Zoe. I made it so they have to eat other beings. This way, they'll have to recognize that they're completely connected with everything, that they're not separate, that they're the same thing as the rest of creation. Well, that does seem more promising, Zoe agreed. But that didn't work either. The Buddhas were definitely into food and eating, but they didn't seem to get the deeper message. So then... Lu made death. When they see that things die and leave their bodies behind and that they're too going to die and leave their body behind, then they won't mistake this body for who they are. They'll realize that they're not separate, but part of the arising and vanishing of all of creation. But this completely backfired Instead, the Buddhas became really, really, really afraid of dying, and their fear made them even more aggressive. The world was in great upheaval. Those Buddhas are a fucking disaster, said Zo, <laughs> surveying the damage. They're just confused. I don't know how to get them to recognize who they really are. Lou and Zoe watched the world for a long, long, long time. Finally, Zoe said, I think they just need to relax. They need to stop doing so much. If they could really just rest, Re really rest, and, and be awake at the same time, I think they could find their original presence. I, I think they could find it quite naturally. Lou sighed. Yeah, I think you're right. But that's going to be so hard for them. They're so caught up in doing, doing, doing. Hmm, not all of them, Zoe observed. Some of them are ready to stop. Perhaps you've heard Yukon talk about coming to the monastery and saying, this is where I stop. And perhaps you have your own version of that. Stopping the games, the strategies, the hamster wheel of ambition, the churning cycle of addiction, the trying to get somewhere, the trying to be better, to be different, to be other than you are. 
trying to get more of, trying to get rid of, trying to fix yourself, trying to have a different experience than the one that you are having. Stop. Stop. Just rest. When you're just in the room right now and you hear the sounds drift in and you feel your body sitting on your chair or your cushion and you notice what's arising in your mind, just right now, What's experiencing that? Don't recall, don't imagine, don't think, don't examine, don't control. Rest. What is this resting in our experience? The Zen teacher, Susan Murphy, who's a um, successor of John Terrence and has a practice um, center in Australia, wrote in an article in Tricycle five years ago um, about Zazen, something that I thought uh, suited this well. She wrote, Zazen means only sitting. It means dropping away anything extra to your breathing, the air on your face, the weight of your body, the subtle energy of your hands, the intimate sounds of lungs, heart, and belly, the sudden cry of a bird, the coming and the going of thoughts and half-thoughts, feelings and sensations. None require anything beyond your steady, unpresuming attention. Wonderfully, there are no steps, guidelines, bullet points, or blueprints for this state of resting the mind in what is. I love the way Zen's generous but challenging gift to us stays almost completely silent on method, as silent as the mind, free of constructs and narratives of self. Instead, Zazen honors direct, ordinary experience, moment by moment, as the path itself. I think of Daida Roshi's oft-quoted pith instruction, trust yourself. How do you sit? Trust yourself. What does that mean? Trust yourself.
but shh. And I was thinking of um, at the um, Ongo Intensive this past spring, I know um, many of you were there. There was a quite a nice exchange between Shigen Roshi and Rakasan. <laughs> Um, I can't remember exactly, nor do my notes reflect exactly what the question was, but um, uh, Roshi was asking something about, like, how do you sit zazen? Something along those lines. And um, Rakasan bravely took a stab at it and, um, you know, said this and that and this and that and this and that in his, like, feelingful, poetic way. And Shugen was like, yeah, but what about da-da-da? Roxanne took a breath, and then he tried again. He said this and that, and this and that, and this and that. And another, like, kind of beautiful, descriptive, like, very interior, landscaped kind of way. And then Shugen was like, yeah, but what about da-da-da? And then Roxanne, like, tried again, and he was like, okay, well, it's something like, I may be misquoting you, but something like... Um, well, it's not a matter of the head, and it's not a matter of um, making something happen. It's, it's a matter of the heart. And um, Shugen took a breath, and I thought, like, oh, like, is he going to accept that? And he was like, well, the honest answer is you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. What does it mean to rest the mind? What does it mean to let something go? What does it mean to be present with our experience just as it is without adding or controlling or fixing? We are the only ones who can find our way to that. And whereas some traditions may have more um, explanation, I like how... um, Susan Murphy sort of frames this as the generosity of Zen, that there's almost no kind of um, this is how you do it uh, teaching. But in place of that, we have face-to-face teaching, which is where you're going to get instruction to help you find your way. Talk about generous. And just to note that Tilopa's pith instruction is really a um, very concise description of our internal busyness. How we struggle with reality. How we're constantly in such subtle ways, trying to shape it, control it, have a particular experience. Think about what's going on right now instead of just being present for it. I remember my very first year of residential training, way back in the old days. Um, I, was, I was the cook. I was one of the cooks, and I was in the kitchen, and I was trying to, like, practice um, and I remember, I don't know why this is emblazoned in my mind, but I remember, like, I knew, like, I'm constantly, I was constantly caught in thought. 
this teaching of like having, you know, just like being present with things as they are. I was like, what? And I was like, I remember opening the refrigerator door and thinking like, I'm opening the refrigerator door and being like, shut up! <laughs> How do you turn that off? Yeah. Also in that um, Ango Intensive, uh, Roshi said, the great way is essentially relaxed. So Sashin gives us this perfect container to experiment with this resting, this quality of relaxation. And we can um, use anything. One of, one of my, my favorite things is to take something that's irritating me and see if I can like, um, bring it to the path, so to speak. Can I turn it? Can I use it as a hint? As a hint. So something's irritating me. Someone's in my way, or they're doing it wrong. Or because of X, now I have to do Y, right? Um, whatever it is, to feel when I notice like that irritation arising and the constriction in my body and mind, to like take it in, like, oh, okay, a hint. And now to ask, like, what's the problem? What's actually the problem? Where is the problem? Where is the suffering? And can I accept my own state of mind? Can I not try to fix it or change it? Can I literally, what happens, radical thought, if I'm just there with the sensation of my irritation, just plain, unadorned, raw, Try it. (laughs) So, this trust, trusting in ourself, accepting what is. When we accept what's before us, inside us, outside us, just as it is, without trying to monkey around, it's a completely different experience. And I can't resist giving just one more example from the Ongo Intensive. Um, Some of you may remember this, but Cajun Hall shared a... um, experience of how she had a client um, who would know, I guess, I think if my memory serves, and my notes are accurate, she was working in some kind of advertising. Anyway, it was something where she was generating um, proofs that the client had to approve. And this client would always like send the proof back with changes. And she was like, so irritated by this 
red flag, irritation, okay. And um, it became so intolerable that she devised a, uh, uh, an upaya for herself <laughs> that she described as like she decided she was just going to um, believe that this client was going to need a thousand proofs. That like that was just the reality there. They were going to ask for proofs a thousand times and could she just like work within that realm? And she talked about how that totally transformed her experience. And I was thinking about how, um, you know, she was, she was giving herself a, an approach, kind of a backdoor sneaky approach to accepting what is. That's all. So how deeply can we trust ourself and our experience to sit on our cushion and just be with what is, just as it is, for real? Not like after you've cleaned it up and made it how you think it should be, but just like plain. So, Zoe said, what do you think, Lou? Was it worth it? (laughs) There's no point in even answering that question, Lou responded. Night was falling. Lou leaned in close to the world as if to rock the Buddhas with their voice. Shh, shh, it's okay. It's okay. There's nothing to be afraid of. You're just fine. You're just fine how you are. Zoe watched the moon peek out from some clouds. An owl called out. And Zoe made a fine rain start to fall. Come on, little Buddhas. Hear that? So many hints. Come on. They do bring a lot of love, don't they, Zoe? The love makes it worth it. The love makes it totally worth it. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org.